Well, good morning. Thank you, Christopher. Christopher has stepped in uh, uh, when Dave Carter retired from our counseling ministry. Christopher Ferris and his family have uh, joined the church and stepped in to take on that role. And just a reminder that if any of you are in a point where you're needing counseling or have somebody in your family who needs that, feel free to reach out at one of the great services the church offers to to the community. Um, One of the things as we jump in is... uh, We've been going through John, and we're going to interrupt John, as Darren said last week, with about four weeks of a vision series, where we just simply take a look at the vision of where the church is going. And we've established four key uh, pillars or principles that we're building off of, that that is the, the vision. And as you remember last week, that Darren talked about radiant peace that was rooted in a confident expectation, that that idea that we would know who God was, what his promises were, scripture itself would give us that confidence that our faith would be strong and that that would be just lived out as radiant peace. That peace would flow because of the confident expectation we had. And then this week we're jumping in um, with the second pillar, which is just simply revolutionary kindness that is rooted in humble solidarity. A revolutionary kindness that is rooted in humble solidarity. And the the concept behind this is the idea that our church wouldn't just have little phrases, but rather that this would speak to be true, that we would be a church who would be just flowing with a revolutionary kindness, that it would come out of us as a body of believers. And the reason for that is because it's rooted in a humble solidarity. So that's how that phrase sets up. As we've just read Philippians 2... When you read, or the first half of Philippians 2, as you hear Philippians 2, it's what it says. It's one of those times when you really think, all right, all we really need is that passage. You should get it by now. But we have a little more time, so we're going to take it, and we're going to go into looking at that passage and breaking it open. So right off the bat, if you've got your Bibles or you've got your, uh, you don't have Philippians journals. I just realized this in the last service. I was like, turn to your John journals and uh, read Philippians 2. It's not going to be in there. So if you've got it on your phone or your Bible, just flip that open to Philippians 2. And we're going to start right off the bat with verse 2, because it lays out this concept. That this revolutionary kindness rooted in humble solidarity. And that might be the question is we can understand kindness. We can even understand humility. But what do you mean by this humble solidarity? Well, Philippians 2 verse 2 simply says this. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. There are four of them right in a row that Paul lays out and he says, I want you to be of the same mind. And so he stacks them up of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord with each other and having the same uh, and of one mind. 
So the, the concept is four different ways he says this, that you would be unified, the same mind, the same love, a full accord, that you would be of one mind. So when we talk about this idea that we have this humble solidarity, it's that we would be a unified body and not just like, well, we all get together or last Sunday we had a great baptism by the beach and we were all together and we were all at the same beach. Wasn't that wonderful? You know, it's, it's not just the togetherness. It's that there's more to it. It's this idea that, that the solidarity is this common theme that from that drives our revolutionary kindness. So right off the bat, he does that. And then that humble part shows up in verse 3, the very next verse. It says, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Look, let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And this concept here, as it lays out, is it stops and says, you're you're thinking about others is more important. That humility is that you're setting it aside. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. So that's the humble solidarity, that we have one mind, and it's from this point of how we see the world humbly. But if you'll remember, we've talked about humility before, and there's this concept of humility that many times we take humility as, oh, woe is me, I'm a bad person, or I'm a low person, or I just need to humble myself, and we make lots of jokes about humility. But I love what Andrew Murray does in his book on humility. In the, in the preface, he lays out this simple concept, and he says, in Philippians specifically, it says, have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who humbled himself. So the way we should be looking at humility is the way Christ looked at humility. And then in there, it says, who humbled himself by becoming obedient, even to the point of death on the cross. So he talks about a kind of humility that may not be what we first think about. So Andrew Murray says there's three basic kinds. The first one is the created form. We are creatures. We've been created. And so right off the bat, Murray stops and says, the first thing about humility is that many of us would be humbled by the fact that we realize we didn't make ourselves. Now, some of you may have dressed yourselves. Some of you may have done your hair, but you have been created by someone else. That should be humbling. To step into God's creation should be humbling. If you go out to the Grand Canyon and you look at its vastness, that should be humbling. If you go stand on a seashore, that should be humbling. Right now, we have uh, a lot of kids in the house. So what I do when I, I get up in the morning is instead of walking down the hallway and potentially waking them up, I sneak out a back door and go through the backyard. And this morning, I noticed that I had left a ladder up that went up to our roof. And I noticed that the sunrise was starting. So I thought, what a great place to watch the sunrise. So I got on the ladder. I went up and sat on the roof. And there's just this beautiful sunrise this morning. How many of you saw it? Yeah, that's what I was afraid of. There were a few more in the, the earlier service, as you might imagine. Um, but if you are on Instagram, go see my Instagram feed. There's a beautiful picture of what God did this morning while you slept. It's gorgeous. The creator is doing incredible things. He did it with the, the, the sky this morning, and it, it drove me to Job 38. And you don't have to turn there. I'm just going to read it, but it's God talking. And he simply says, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. 
Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thickness, thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, thus far shall you come and no further. And here shall your proud waves be stayed. God sets up the morning and he lays it out. And we just simply get up in the morning and he's already done the work. We should be humbled by the fact that we are created beings, by looking at our hands, by being able to think of looking across and just seeing the color in this room. It's those kind of things that humble us. But as, as Murray said, Andrew Murray, he just simply stopped and said, but that's not what we're talking about here in Philippians 2. In Philippians 2, he says it's not the created form. We should be humbled by it, but that's not what Philippians 2 is talking about. The way Christ humbled himself, that's not the same mind that we're to have in us. He then stops and says the sinner is the second one that humbles us. How many of you have sinned? I've asked this question before, and again, you should feel guilty by now because if you're not raising your hand, you're lying. This front row right here has never sinned, you liars. It's that concept, you're sinning now. It's that kind of thing. It just, we're constantly caught up in this where we know we're sinners. We know we've done some terrible things. We know even now we're caught up in sin, and we know that tomorrow we're going to go right back to some of that sin. This is humbling to be in this body of flesh, which just continues to trip us up. And Murray said, that should humble you. But you have to understand this idea of being a creature, being created, and this idea of being a sinner, of committing sins. Jesus didn't do either of those. Jesus was never a created being. He is the creator. Jesus never sinned. He is the one that died for our sins. He is holy and blameless. This concept of the humility that was in Jesus is not those humilities that we feel and you should feel. But it's a third form when it stops and says, have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who humbled himself by becoming obedient, even to the point of death on a cross. He humbled himself by being obedient. The last and third obedience or uh, humility is of obedience. It's where I take my will, my desires, the thing I want to do, and I don't do them. I humble myself. I put myself down and instead obey the Father. Obey what God is calling us to do. And this is where we, we start when we talk about this humble solidarity that we as a body of believers come together and say, yes, that's me too. I'm humbled by the fact that I'm created. I'm humbled by the fact that I'm sinful, but I also want to choose to humble myself and be obedient to the Father. And by that, by taking on his mind, we then step into this idea of revolutionary kindness. And this is... This is what this pillar is about. Revolutionary kindness rooted in humble solidarity. That as we stand from this, it, it grows out of that. Um, kindness itself is having a bit of a moment right now with our society. Have you noticed? 
There's so much incivility. There's so much just hatred. There's so much bickering. There people fight for this point of view or that point of view. And you can turn on the TV and just see the incivility. It's happening on our streets. It's happening in public. It's happening in the public sphere. It's happening in politics. It just goes everywhere. So the concept is, is people say, we need a little kindness. And so we start talking about this idea of random acts of kindness that we would just go out and do random acts of kindness to kind of counteract the, the incivility that's going on in our world. But this is not the kind of kindness that is revolutionary. This is a simple, light form of kindness. God's kindness is not random. It is on purpose. Need you to understand that. God is not randomly being kind. This concept of random acts of kindness, you should do that. It should flow from you. But that is not what we're talking about when we talk about revolutionary kindness that is rooted in humble solidarity. God is not random. He's very purposeful. He has done this from the foundations of the, the, the beginning of the world, from the foundations of the earth, he has planned this. If, if you've got your Bibles, just go forward one book to Ephesians. And in Ephesians 1, we'll jump in at verse 3. It says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That is kindness. And it's revolutionary kindness in the fact that the God of the universe stops and sends his son down to die for us so that we could have a relationship with him even though we are in sin. He does this incredible act of kindness, not randomly, but now look at verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose." which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. God does not take part in random acts of kindness. God does it on purpose. And so this is the first point of three that we're just going to build around this idea of revolutionary kindness. The first one is it's on purpose. It's purposeful. And just so if you're writing them out, you can get all three. It's purposeful, it's transformative, and it's subversive. This revolutionary kindness is purposeful. It's something you think about ahead of time, you plan ahead of time. God did this incredible act of revolutionary kindness before the foundations of the earth. He did it on purpose. He thought of you. He was thinking of you. He knew where you would be. He knew what you would be going through. And he sent his son to die for you before you were ever even created. That's awesome. It's purposeful. Now, this idea of being purposeful, I remember when I was working with uh, Union Gospel Mission up in Seattle, we would supply a ton of food for food banks. We would go out and procure food from different manufacturers, anything that was donated. We had a huge, they still have huge warehouses that would supply food banks all around the county. But along the way, as we were thinking about being purposeful, we realized we were missing something that one of the things that was key to us was a, a heavy part 
part of a relationship, that we understood that in order to love people well and to walk with them in their difficult journeys, that we needed to be in relationship with them and not so transactional as just simply handing them goods. And yet we realized by providing food to the food banks that on a Saturday morning, somebody would come up to the food bank, take their box of groceries and walk away. There was very little relational interaction going on. Now, if you give food to food banks, keep doing that. I don't want to like dog on food banks. I just want to show you something that happened to us when we started to get involved of thinking about doing something on purpose. By thinking about doing it on purpose, and we chose to be more relational about how we gave out the food, we said churches are relational. They kind of stick together. They're more thinking about other people and their needs. And so we decided instead of giving the food to the food banks, what if we gave it to churches and asked the churches to distribute it to their communities, to their neighborhoods, and that they would open little food pantries and be there and be more relational. So we started doing that. And sure enough, right off the bat, in one particular church, this grandma comes in. She was a grandma raising the kids in her family. Her her own kids were... Unfortunately, one was in prison and one was dead, but they had kids, and so she was raising the kids. And as she was raising the kids, she had a limited income, she needed help, so she showed up at the church to get this box of food. And she walks up to the counter to get the box of food, and a guy that was with the church sees her come up, and as he sees her come up, he looks at her and he says, you know what, I can carry, this is a big box, why don't you have me carry this to your, your trunk, and I'll, I'll set it in the trunk for you. And she says, young man, I wish you could, that would be great, if you could carry that, but the problem is, my trunk is back at my house, my car is broken down sitting in the driveway, I took the bus, if you'd like to ride on the bus with me, you could take it and put it in the trunk. And he's like, well, no, I don't necessarily want to do that. But as he's looking at the situation, he says, your car is broken down. You had to take the bus. You're going to drive across the city or ride across the city in a bus with this box of groceries. He said, why don't I give you a ride? Let me put it in my trunk and I'll drive you home. She looked at him and said, okay. And so they got in the car. They drove to her house. And when he pulled into the driveway, there was a car broken down. And the tires by this time were flat because it had been sitting for a couple of years. And he noticed the car, flat tires, all dirty, dust all over it, spider webs tying it down to the driveway. And there on the lawn was a lawn that hadn't been mowed in in months and months and months. And there's the house that had been spray painted and graffitied on. There were windows broken. And he went and he took the box inside and set it on the kitchen counter. And he saw the condition of the house and a carpet that was terribly dirty. And as soon as he dropped off the groceries, he got back in his car. He pulled out his phone and he called the guys in his men's Bible study. And he says, guys, we've got a job to do. And he pulled two of his friends who could fix cars and they replaced the alternator in the car because that was the only thing that was wrong with it. Put air in the tires and got the car running. They had other guys that mowed the lawn. Other guys painted out the house. Other guys did the window. Other guys extracted the carpet. This morning I first said it excavated the carpet. And parts, some carpets need to be excavated and just pulled out. Hers wasn't that bad. But they went in and they just simply said, this is us. This is something we can do because in their their humble solidarity, the kindness flowed out. This wasn't random. This was purposeful. This was them saying, this woman needs help. These are the things we can do. And we are going to jump in and pull in together to do that. 
Revolutionary kindness is something that comes out of us and pours out of us into the community, but it's not random where it's like, oh, I'm going to go do that. I'm going to put quarters in a meter. Those are nice things. Do nice things. But that's not what we're talking about when we talk about vision for this church to be able to impact our community. It needs to be a revolutionary kindness that is rooted in humble solidarity and it pours out into our community in different ways and it is purposeful. The next one is it is transformative. And it doesn't just change the people you're ministering to. The woman who took the groceries. It changes us. It changes the people that are doing it. I can't tell you enough about those men and how it transformed, how they look at the world after they got involved in this act of kindness. But as we look at Philippians, we also have it here where this this concept of transformation shows up. Look at verse 10. In verse 10, um, I think we'll, uh, we'll start with verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of work, so that I'm in Ephesians. Never mind. Those are good verses. <laughs> it's always good to read more of the Bible. None of you said a thing. You were just going to let me go, weren't you? I, like, I don't know where he's at, but it sounds good. Verse 9, therefore God has highly exalted him, Christ, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. I want you to see that there's two kinds of transformation that happens there. Even Jesus himself is transformed by the Father. He is exalted because of the act of revolutionary kindness that he does. But the next part is that every knee would bow, that we are transformed, that it changes us every knee would bow that's not everybody in this building it's not even everybody in this city it's every human that has ever lived their knee will be bowed this is transformative work because of who christ is because of his work on the cross because of this revolutionary act of kindness god exalted him and because he so exalted him every human being that ever lived and will ever live will be transformed in one way or another that powerful work of what christ does through revolutionary kindness And he invites us and even commands us to be a part of that, to be a part of the transformative work of the gospel in other people's lives. They desperately need to know the gospel. One of the kindest things you can do is simply share the gospel with those around you, with your family, with your friends. Live it out. Talk about it. Share it. Shine bright. This is what kindness is. It could be one of the cruelest things in the world to know Christ and to live in secret next to your own neighbors and they never get to know Jesus through that. Revolutionary kindness is transformative. It changes people. Finally, the the last one is subversive that this concept of what it does in our world is it's not just something about being nice. It's this idea that we have a, a world that desperately needs it. We talked about how they're trying acts of random kindness just to try to, to, to numb the incivility that they're already feeling. But look at this in verse 14 and 15. Do all things without grumbling or questioning that you may be blameless and innocent. Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. 
And the middle of that, of all that confusion, of all that brokenness, of all that crookedness and twistedness, among whom you shine as lights in the world. That this is Jesus coming to us. This is Paul saying, you are to be the lights in the world. That your kindness, the kindness coming out of you, would be so revolutionary that it would be at odds to what the world does. That it would shine out completely different than everything else the world does. But here's the problem with that kind of kindness. It comes at a cost. You see, when we talk about things of random acts of kindness, there's somebody that's in line at Starbucks and you decide, I'm going to be kind, so I'm going to, I'm going to pay for their tall decaf soy latte. They already have money. They're in line to buy it themselves. They don't need you. But that concept is, is we look at it and we think we're doing something great. It's still nice. It's a good exercise of the heart. But this is not revolutionary kindness. This is the kind of kindness that might cost you three, four bucks. But what we're talking about here is the kind that costs completely different on a deeper level. So I'm going to imagine you're back in school just for a second. And remember the whole XY graphs that just simply chart you know, scales on things. So we've got kindness. The kindness scale is right here. This is zero. This is 10. So you've got kindness going up and down. And then this scale is risk. This is what it costs us to do that kind of kindness. So this is zero and that's 10. This isn't very much risk. This is a lot of risk. You got the scale in your mind? The arrow basically works like this. Kindness 10, lots of kindness is over here where there's zero on risk. As soon as risk starts to go up, kindness goes down. We know this is true. The arrow goes like this. That what happens is there's lots of kindness stacked over at zero and one where it doesn't cost us much, but when it starts costing a lot, kindness drops off quickly. It's far more difficult to do those things that are going to cost us hard. That's the story of the Good Samaritan. Why the priest and the Levite went on the other way is because they looked at the graph and they said, ah, we don't want to be in that part of the graph. And they go away. So here's the thing. We've done this before, but I'm going to have you do it again. If you will pull out your cell phones, everybody who has a cell phone, I need you to get it out. And I want you right now to think about somebody that you love, somebody that's a friend of yours, somebody that is family, somebody that's close to you, somebody that makes you happy, somebody that you love, that are missing, and I want you to literally text them right now. I love you, I'm thinking about you, or I'm missing you. You come up with the words, but just a few short words. I don't need you to go into a full text string. Um, we have one guy, I think is still here from the first service. He, he's just a little slow. But just simply take some time to send out a one, two, three word message. Love you, thinking about you, miss you, something that way. When you've sent it, I need you to raise your hand. If you don't have a phone or you're just flat out refusing or you don't have anybody you love, raise your hand as well. I'll know you're not going to do it or you you can't do it so that as I know that these are going out, I'll see when everybody is is done. So even if you don't have a phone, raise your hand because that tells me that we're getting close. But I want you to make sure you send out that text. Remember, just a few words. Some of you are sending a book. (laughs) No pictures, just, just a few words. No memes. 
All right, I think we got enough. If you're still doing it, finish it up. But here's the point. Here's the point. That didn't cost you much. Some of you may still be paying for texts. I'm sorry. (laughs) That's the cost. You're still high on the scale, right? But now I want you to do this. Now I want you to think of about somebody who you're having a hard time with. Somebody you're in a disagreement with, somebody that you are ticked at or it's ticked at you, somebody who has wronged you, somebody who has hurt you, somebody maybe you haven't even talked to in years. And now I want you to pull out the phone and I need you to text them almost those identical words. Whatever you said to the first person, I need you to say it to the second person. Is that a little harder? Is it a little more difficult? Do the words need to change a touch? Are we suddenly sliding down this scale of cost? And because it's going to cost a little bit, it's going to be harder, that it's going to be more difficult to be kind in that regard, then we don't do it. Kindness decreases as the risk or cost increases. Revolutionary kindness comes from Philippians when it says this, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility... Count others more significant, more important than yourself. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind in yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This idea that revolutionary kindness flows out of the same mind that we're all unified in, the mind of Jesus. We have the same mind, the same love that's rooted there. Now, this idea of rootedness, just so you can understand, this isn't something where we typically just go, gosh, I've got to think of kind things to do, but rather it starts to flow out of us because we're rooted in this humble solidarity. When we begin to understand the cost of kindness, then we realize we've got to pay a little bigger price. But rather than sitting there thinking, well, how much am I willing to pay? It comes out of this humble solidarity. So in my yard... um, there's this planter that's in between the sidewalk and the street, and it's, it's got these succulents, really small kind of ground cover succulents growing in this, this big section. So instead of a lawn that might be a little lawn area, it's got these succulents. We bought the house that had these beautiful succulents laying there. The guy had had some kind of nut grass in it before, so he put that uh, weed cloth over it, and then he put rocks over it, and then he planted the succulents. We moved into the house. It looked beautiful. Within a month or two, the nutgrass had grown right through that fabric cloth, and now we have nutgrass everywhere. Now, the reason why I know it's nutgrass is because I've studied it, trying to figure out how to kill it. And what happens is, is you go to pick it, because it just looks like this big chunk of grass, and you go to just pull it out, and it just snaps off in your hands. And the nut is a root ball that's down in the ground. And so when you snap it off, it doesn't matter that you pulled the top off. It's still down there, and it sends up more shoots, and it keeps growing more grass. It keeps going and going. And so now it's not just one or two, it's a lot. And we have nutgrass everywhere. Now, some of you, right after this service, are going to come up to me and tell me how to kill nutgrass. I don't need that. I don't need to know how to kill it. You see, what's happened is, because that nutgrass keeps coming out, my wife and I keep going and picking it, and so it's actually become an evangelism tool, a way for us to be hospitable to our neighbors, because we're out in our front yard constantly picking grass. And it's allowed us to get to know our neighbors in ways we never would if we were sitting on our couch inside. 
So because of that, I've provided at the back as you exit, all of you are going to have little bags of nutgrass to plant in your front yards that I'm giving of my own. This is the sacrifice, the cost that I'm willing to do for you. Here's the point. That root ball down in the bottom, it doesn't matter what's happening on the surface. It continues to just flow from the root. Revolutionary kindness rooted in humble solidarity and having a mind that's in Christ should be in all of us that this church should pour out revolutionary kindness, disruptive kindness, kindness that is at odds with the rest of the world because it's coming from the mind of Christ and how he lives in us. It should be purposeful. It should be transformative. It should be subversive. What I want to do right now is invite Darren up and to talk a little bit of what that looks like when our church begins to live out this as a vision for how we can live with revolutionary kindness in this community. Darren? Thanks, Jeff. Man, does that get you guys excited? It gets me stirred up. Uh, because, the I mean, I just think about all of us being, you know... Nutgrass of kindness, right? Is that the way I'm supposed to take that? Huh? Um, every week as we sort of walk out some of this, uh, this vision stuff, we're not only just talking about the philosophy, but we want to sort of lay out some of the practicalities of what that actually looks like, what these action steps might be. Um, as far as our team goes, we've got a list of 20 or 30 things that would be indicative of revolutionary kindness that's rooted in humble solidarity. When we understand our universal brokenness with our fellow man and we start to love and give and serve, there are a ton of different action items I could share with you. But I just, for the sake of time this morning, I want to share with you our top five. These are things that we're hoping to see made manifest in our family, in our community in the next year or so. Um, the, the first one is one that will be familiar to you. We, uh, this last year around Thanksgiving, we did a thing called 50,000 Days of Christmas. And uh, it was a little bit of a dream. We didn't know whether it would work or not. But the idea of 50,000 Days of Christmas was, we said, what if we could raise $50,000 with the sole purpose of just trying to give it away to our neighbors, right? And you remember we did a little 12 Days of Christmas jingle that was like 12, you know, 12 pairs of shoes, 11 laptops for single moms, 10 after school daycare, you know, it's like all this stuff. And we were hoping, man, if we could raise 50,000, we would just give that away in service of our neighbors and the community. We ended up raising over $100,000 and are still in the process of giving some of that away as needs come up. Each of those needs was submitted by us and we just kind of kept, kept handing it out. Well, our hope is, because that's such a good picture of what revolutionary kindness looks like, that we're just looking for needs and then going and finding ways to bless people financially and through gifts and whatever. Uh, we're going to do that again. So as Thanksgiving rolls around, and we come back to our Thanksgiving offering rather than, um, rather than trying to raise money for a building project or whatever that would be internal. Once again, we're going to try and rally around this idea of just blessing our city and blessing our neighbors. So that's coming up. The second thing we're, uh, we're sort of loosely referring to as the loneliness project. Now, w- one of the things we've seen kind of around the world, is a renewed effort to pay attention to people who are isolated and who are lonely. Most notably, I've seen some great, uh, some great data and some videos from the UK about the ways in which they're working to influence the loneliness that's happening among the elderly. They're finding there are tons of retired folks or widowed folks who are living by themselves and they have almost no human interaction. And so the government actually in England has started these initiatives just to connect older people with younger people. So they got somebody in their house to help make sure they have everything they 
they need, to make sure they're, they've got some companionship and some conversation. Well, we as followers of Jesus recognize that that loneliness isn't necessarily relegated just to those who are elderly or widowed, that there are people right here in our neighborhood that are lonely on a regular basis, including the elderly, but we also see people who are divorced. We see people in the midst of sickness and illness. We see people who are grieving. We see people in our community who are recently transferred to the city and don't know anybody, so strangers to the community. We see immigrants who are on the outside. Maybe they don't speak English as a first language, and so they've had a hard time kind of connecting. We see people in the LGBTQ community who are absolutely feeling ostracized from the rest of the neighborhood. One of the things we want to do in the coming year is to be intentional in locating and identifying people who are isolated and alone, who feel like nobody knows them and nobody sees them, nobody cares about them, and finding ways to engage, to come alongside and be brothers and sisters with people who are hurting and alone and isolated, no matter what circumstance they may be in. So Loneliness Project is number two, right? 50 days of Christmas, 50,000 days of Christmas, number one. Number two, the Loneliness Project. Number three, we've been talking, I talked about this a couple weeks weeks ago, our tragedy response team. Every week in the news, we see tragic things that are happening in our community, the communities around here. I think even just in the last month of the the officer-involved shooting that happened on the freeway where there was a a girl who was suffering from from depression and some mental illness, and she kind of attacked and and approached a a police officer and hit his car and then got out and brought up a fake gun, and the, the officer, in protection of himself, shot and killed that woman. Think about that scenario, and think about the fact that in that moment, you not only have a family, then, that is grieving the loss of their daughter, Right, grieving the loss of their 17-year-old daughter who was suffering this mental illness, but you also have the the family of that officer and the officer himself and that whole that whole police department that now is sort of grieving in in the fact that they've taken the life of someone who was hurting. When we read about that in the newspaper, I think all of us kind of went, man, we need to be praying for all these people. But one of the things we're hoping to do in the next year is to go one step further than just praying for them. That when we see a tragic event or when we see people that are grieving and hurting in our community, we would have a team of people ready to mobilize, to engage with parties on either side of an equation like that and say, how can we help you? How can we bless you? How can we love you? Can we provide counseling? Can we provide support? Can we provide encouragement? Can we do meals? Like, what, what would that look like? So we've got a tragedy response team that's going to be forming up in the next year, literally to just meet people in the midst of crisis. That's the third thing. The fourth thing we're calling everyone known, and I know that's kind of generic, but the idea there is that in a big church like this, sometimes people get lost in the shuffle. In fact, there are some people who choose a church like this because they want to disappear. They want to be wallflowers and kind of just not be known by anybody. But, but that's not what family is. That's not what it means to be the body of Christ. We believe that each person was created uniquely and with a purpose. And as such, it's important that we are involved in each other's lives. So one of the things we're aiming at over the next year as an expression of this revolutionary kindness is that no one would be able to participate in fellowship in this body without being known by other people. And some of the way that happens is through small groups. It happens through life groups. It happens through our community groups. It happens through adult fellowships. It can happen through all, all kinds of ways, volunteering, getting plugged into service on various teams, taking international trips. But we want to be very intentional to make sure nobody gets lost in the shuffle and that everybody has other people that know them and care about them and hear their stories. One of the key ways we're, we're sort of engaging in that is through mentorship. And maybe in the last week or so, you've heard Kelsey talk about our renewed efforts toward mentorship. I would like mentorship to be just part of our DNA. If you're a part of this church, in a couple of years, I'd love to be at a place where just it's sort of like Kind of a known deal that, yeah, if if you're a part of the family here, you're mentoring somebody or you're being mentored. 
Um, if you're interested in kind of being in that, in that second wave of mentorships, we've got a mentorship equipping meeting that's happening next Sunday uh, between four and five in the family room, which is right over here. We want every person in our church to be engaged in a one-on-one mentorship relationship in one way or another. So start thinking about where you could fit that into your schedule or how it could work. We've got some flexibility, but we want everyone to be known. That's the fourth, right? 50,000 Days of Christmas, The Loneliness Project, Tragedy Response Team, Everyone known. And then the fifth is a thing uh, we're loosely calling apartment adoption. That's not very, it doesn't have a cool ring to it yet. But over the last two years, in my, in my personal prayer time, every time I'm, I'm praying and seeking God's direction for our church, God continues to put the word, this one word in my mind, apartments, right? It's kind of a weird word, but it keeps coming up. And I recognize that in our city and the cities around here, there are all kinds of apartment buildings and uh, there's condo complexes and whatever with tons of people in them. And yet we, we don't actually have much of a strategy for figuring out how to love the people in those apartments. So one of the things we're hoping to do over the next year is to raise up teams of people that would adopt a complex or adopt a condominium complex and go, yeah, I'm going to do what it takes to get in there. Maybe that would be moving into that apartment to live there, but more likely it might just be showing up to do after school tutoring or showing up to pay for people's laundry on a Thursday night or repainting or pulling the nut grass out of the yard. I don't know what it'll look like, but we want to be actively involved in just allowing our solidarity in the humility of our brokenness, allowing that solidarity to produce this fruit, right, of kindness in the lives of other people. Jesus has cleansed us, right? He has set us free and he has set us free so that we can declare the excellencies of he who took us out of the darkness and into the light. That we would be able to look at people who are still in the darkness and say, man, there is no reason why you should stay in the darkness a minute longer. We're gonna finish our service this morning by celebrating this Jesus who has redeemed us, who has called us his own, who has called us his people and who stirs in us this kindness that both revolutionizes the lives of our neighbors but revolutionizes us in the process as well. I invite you to stand to your feet and let's sing the praise of this Jesus.